That was a section of Young at Heart from pianist George Cable's new album, I'm All Smiles. George Cable's is my guest on this episode of the Burning Ambulance podcast. Hello, I'm Phil Freeman, and welcome to the Burning Ambulance podcast, which is part of the Osiris Network. If you enjoy the show, I hope you'll consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash burningambulance. It's just $5 a month, and it'll really help us to create more and better content on BurningAmbulance.com and on the podcast. So please become a subscriber if you can. George Cables is one of those musicians that serious jazz fans love, but who's not that well known to the broader public. He's never crossed over in any way because he's never really tried to. He's jazz to the core of his bones, and he's had an incredible career both as a leader and as a sideman. He uh, started out at the very end of the 60s, post-Coltrane, and really made his mark in the early 70s when he played with Joe Henderson, Woody Shaw, Dexter Gordon, Freddie Hubbard, Art Pepper, and a million other people. He's recorded dozens of albums as a leader and played on over 200 albums overall. I mean, you go to the guy's Discogs page and it's ridiculous. 
These days, he's a member of the Cookers, the all-star band led by trumpeter David Weiss that also includes Eddie Henderson, Billy Harper, Cecil McBee, and Billy Hart, among others. I saw him play with them at Iridium in New York a few years ago, and it was a fantastic show. High-level acoustic jazz in that classic 70s style. Really tight ensemble playing, terrific solos, compositions by all the members of the group. It was The Cookers are fantastic if you ever get the chance to see them, and all their albums are worth hearing. And George Cables has released a number of trio records recently with the same band that's featured on I'm All Smiles. I think this is about his fourth album with those two guys. So that's one of the things that we talk about in this upcoming interview. We also talk about the fact that uh, he recently suffered a serious health issue, which resulted in him having his left leg amputated above the knee. And this was after he had uh, a liver and kidney transplant a few years before. So we talk about that. We talk about some of the people he's played with over the years. I asked him how he chooses material because he writes a lot, but he plays a lot of standards as well. And there's a lot more going on. Uh, I hope you'll enjoy this conversation, and I hope you will come away with an interest in a guy whose name isn't nearly as well-known as it should be. I'm going to play another piece of music now. This is As Time Goes By from Dexter Gordon's 1978 album Manhattan Symphony. And right after that, you'll hear my interview with George Cables. Thank you. 
I have a bunch of questions because this, um, you know, I've, I hope we've got about an hour to talk. So okay. um, I guess I'll just dive right in. How old were you when you started playing piano? Well, let's see. I was, uh, I when I was about three or four, you know, I would listen uh, see my mother play the piano. My mother was a, an elementary school teacher, but uh, she played the piano sometimes in assembly and sometimes, uh, sometimes in church when the church organist was on vacation or sick. Um, uh, and so I used to reach up to the piano then and try and uh, play something, before, you know, like uh, Im imitate her. And at some point I got to that, got to the piano. But when I started taking, well, I went to nursery school, like another kind of kindergarten. And, uh, and I started to take lessons there, you know, briefly. And then when I got out of there, I started taking lessons formally. So maybe... Uh, that would probably be at the age of six, uh, uh, kindergarten, that was probably five or so. And did you come from an artistic family in general? And like, did you get encouragement when you decided to become a professional musician? Or did they tell you, you know, you better get a real oh, job was... and you can do this at night or something? You know? Oh, no, no. Actually, they said just continue with school just to be able to have something to fall back on. But, you know, when I was in high school, I was going to a high, sc in the high school in New York called High School of Performing Arts. And uh, uh, they encouraged me to, you know, to practice. I had to practice and do them, do them. I brought my viola home. I had a second instrument. So I brought my viola home. And I do remember my father wasn't that thrilled with that instrument. <laughs> but, uh, um, uh, when by the time I got to Manus, I went to Manus College of Music. I um, I would practice like from midnight to six a.m. You know, uh -huh. and I was within the earshot of my mother, who was upstairs in the you know. Uh, I mean, I was in the basement, and she was on the ground level of, uh, and uh, she, you know, she. Uh, encouraged me to, you know, to finish my, to, 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 she encouraged me to work and to practice and to work on music then. It wasn't until uh, later that I really wanted that to be my direction, but I can say this, when I, I would sometimes ask her, what do you think I should be, Mom? And she said, I want you to be what you want to be. Uh, because uh, there were uh times that she didn't get that uh, mm -hmm. that kind of advice. And did it seem like, you know, at that time in the early, I guess this would be like late 50s, early 60s, did it seem like there were more opportunities for you than there had been for your parents? Oh, absolutely. My parents are 40 years older than me. They were born in uh, 1904 and 5. So, uh, yeah, that's, uh, there's no question that there were more opportunities. My mother uh, uh, graduated. See, my father wasn't able to, to finish, uh, to, to go finish high school. He had to go out and work. He had, was one of five boys. Mm -hmm. uh, weren't uh, really, uh, uh, didn't have a lot of money in their, uh, in their family. My mother... 
finished high school. She went to, actually, it was in Connecticut, I think in Hamden, uh, and she uh, uh, loved school. I mean, she would make her parents dress her up and send her to school if there was a blizzard, even <laughs> though her school would be closed. Uh, and she became a teacher, but uh, she, um, uh, because of, she was, my father, my grandfather had names for the both of us and both of them because we were both very stubborn. And I guess I got that from my mother, you know what I want, this is what I want to do. Don't tell me no, because I'm going to do it anyway. Um, <laughs> so um, uh, she, at that time, uh, finished, and she, her guidance counselor in the school, and she was in an integrated school, so her guidance counselor was white, and she would uh, told her that uh, when my mother said, I want to be a teacher, she said, your people don't want to do that. Your people don't do that. You need to do something else. So uh, she said, well, I'm finishing. And she went to normal school, which was at that, in those days, that's what teaching college was. That was what teaching college was, which was a two-year school. And she came back with a teaching credentials. And she wanted to teach in Milford, but they wouldn't hire her there. By that time, it was too late to, to find a position in New Haven. So... Uh, she went to Maryland uh, and taught in a one-room schoolhouse, uh, and uh, in this colored what they what was called the colored school mm-hmm. district, the colored. And I remember because I found a, a commendation that she had gotten from the colored school district. Uh, and, uh, so she did. Then she came back to Connecticut and taught there, and then she came to New York. But she uh, um, uh, also uh, uh, finished her, got a bachelor's from NYU and a master's from NYU. And in the process, you know, she went to Yale, was a men's school. Uh, I guess she had to go in the summertime, and also to Hunter college and, and get her you know get credits there in the process so you know she did a lot of work to get to where she was and mm-hmm. she taught for 45 years she taught school and she taught school in the New York City school uh, school uh, district uh, for 45 years so she did uh, she did all right mm-hmm. and in order to do that, she, you know, she had to be tough and stubborn, and she had to fight for every, you know, for every uh, entry that she, had, uh, every position, every foothold she could get. You know, wasn't it wasn't easy, and it was, you know, it was those days. I think of the times there it was not like today. Things can be difficult today, but nothing like back in the day. Now, back in those days. Now, some of your your earliest recordings, the ones that kind of, because I know there were a few before this, but the stuff that jumped out for me right away was the stuff from the early 70s with Joe Henderson and Woody Shaw, the Live at the Lighthouse recordings and Pursuit of Blackness and and Woody's album Blackstone Legacy. 
how did you connect with each of those guys and what was the relationship like creatively and personally because both Joe and Woody you know were recording as leaders but you were sort of in both of their bands at different times or at the same time well yeah I mean I, I well Woody of course I got to meet first and uh, I met Woody I guess around 1968 there was a gentleman in New York uh, and he's still he's still here his name is Jim Harrison who was who produced uh, many concerts, uh, and he used to produce concerts with a fellow named Hilly Saunders, uh, and um, uh, I used to go to some of those things that they would have around town, and uh, one, uh, uh, I started playing. I was in a band called the Jazz Samaritans, which basically, basically was a neighborhood band, and. Uh, um, I, I uh, uh, had the first rhythm section was uh, was Billy Cobham and Clint Houston and myself. Uh -huh. Well, Billy had went to the army, so Lenny White, who was in the in the uh, uh, area, he kind of uh, uh, got involved with that band or with with the nucleus of of us, you know, in that rhythm section. So. Um, Jim Harrison was familiar with that rhythm section, so he would hire us to back music, you know, like to be a rhythm section for uh, different musicians. And uh, two of them were, or Woody Shaw and Book Irvin, who were doing something out in Westbury, New York, on Long Island. Mm -hmm. uh, so we played there. That's how I met Woody. I'd seen Woody before. Um, and uh, excuse me, <coughs> I'd seen Woody before when he was with Horace and uh, and other people who were sitting around New York. But uh, Woody liked us; he liked the rhythm section, and he took a special interest in Lenny and me. And uh, shortly after that, he got a gig. Got me a gig with uh, Jackie McLean, late 1968, and. Uh, uh, and with uh, a, a, a Jim, a Jim and Mitchell, sir, right? Anyway, uh, we were working at Slugs, and then a couple of weeks after, early January of 1969, he called me and said, "Our Mickey's changing his band, so you want to get in that band?" So I started working with Art Blakey then, because of Woody. So Woody and, and the Billy Harper in that band uh, and that was the beginning of our musical association you know uh, playing you know, like every night mm -hmm. and then from there I went with Woody I uh, went working to working with Max Roach with Woody and uh, well let me see that was a new product somehow I got this I also got a game with Sonny Rollins but that's not the question you asked that he, how do we and Woody pulled me into I guess Joe maybe Woody recommended me to uh, um, to Joe because that was 1970 when we started working together when we started uh, getting to get in that band together and Lenny White were, uh, were in, and Reggie Johnson was supposed to be the original bassist but on the way to the gig he was driving out the first gig actual gig on the tour we were going to do was in California 
and Reggie decided to drive, but his car broke down or something. I had some problems. So uh, uh, Joe got Ron McClure, and, uh, and he stayed in the band. But um, with uh, um, Joe and Woody, uh, that was, that was for me, that was, I was something. I was so excited. I didn't know what to do. I'd be go home, learn the music we were rehearsing, rehearsing it. I would stay up all night playing that music, go in the basement and work on the music and make sure I had it memorized, knew it inside out. Um, and I mean, Joe was a special person. He was, you know, Joe Henderson, but uh, he was a special voice, especially of that that era and a time and he was uh, a, a ver real virtuoso on his instrument uh, and uh, um, you know if you were thinking of those saxophonists that that uh, represented that era you'd think of maybe Wayne Shorter and uh, Joe Henderson who's kind of stuff. one was horizontal one was vertical I mean bass really oversimplifying it uh, but the, their way of playing uh, but uh, um, uh, both were and especially Joe was very harmonically adventurous and uh, as as was Woody and Lenny was rhythmically <laughs> adventurous mm -hmm. so so where did that uh, leave you as the as the piano player I was I was very harmonically adventurous too uh, but Matter of fact, uh, I, I instead of uh, going through the process of playing inside and then going as time went on playing further out, I was playing more outside. Then you know playing in and out of the chords against the chords. Uh, that was my, uh, you know, uh, my, I guess one of my, my concept because uh, we were talking. You know, I'd spent a lot of time hanging with Woody. Woody and I was very very close, so we'd stay up and be listening to uh, uh, Folkways records and, uh, uh, like a, a Pygmy music and then uh, 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 he was he was loved Bartok so we had a and to listen to Eric Dolphy and stuff like that and uh, I uh, uh, and also old old films old black and white films 30s and 40s and well, like that mm -hmm. but um, uh, I, that's one reason I think we could get along because uh, we sort of Woody and I sort of have an ESP and I could you know like figure out harmonically where he was going and it's similar concepts in, in, in that way Woody would want to play at more open uh, intervals and uh, uh, he was exploring that idea and uh, I was playing like I was influenced by McCoy Tyner and who played the piano sort of like a drum you know uh, rhythmically and uh, using the chords not so and Herbie Hancock who used the chords not so much as well, as chords, but also as colors, mm -hmm. you know. So um, I would kind of think that I could find Woody, but Woody would, would had to rein me in. He said, "Look, George, um, don't go with me. Stay, you know. I need you to stay home." Uh, so.
so that when he goes out, there's contrast when he goes away from the court. Right. And right. I got tests from different people at, you know, <laughs> uh, 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 you know, in different ways. So, um, yeah, that was that was a, a great experience for me. And, and you know, that, that band was full of adventure, you know, so uh, I didn't really feel like uh, handcuffed or tied in or re restrained, mm -hmm. with, uh, except, you know, like just maybe being more disciplined in certain ways. But I a lot of the, uh, A lot of those records also were in that early era of like the early fusion era where bands were taking advantage of the studio more than they had in the past you know like overdubbing instruments and you know doing multiple tracks of things and things like that so how did that change for that you? Did, that because wasn't really so I, when I, I even when I work with Hub with Freddie Hubbard uh, we didn't uh, do that with Joe we didn't do that I mean but we did do with Joe was I was playing electric piano mm -hmm. more uh, I mean he wanted to be he had had a, a hit with uh, power to the people and so um, he wanted to include the Defender Rhodes in uh, in the music so I played a lot of Fender Mm -hmm. with Joe and and I kind of I mean I played piano but you know I was like I said was adventurous and, and I took to that I, I enjoyed that I had a I enjoyed the suitcase model there was I mean there, there was a suitcase model and a stage model the stage model you know the upper register was really bright and was sort of like needle Chicoria preferred that I said Herbie Hancock preferred the suitcase model I like the suitcase model because of the depth of uh, of the sound and the vibrato mm -hmm. uh, of the the, the uh, color of the instrument. And also, I I felt like I would use it when I would want to write. I mean, it's, it's great for me. It was uh, uh, it was it worked well for me for you know writing, and it seemed it worked on my ears <laughs> pretty well when I you know. <laughs> hear, hear uh, things coming uh, from that instrument. It's interesting because the way some players are, you know, like yourself or Herbie or Chick are willing to sort of go back and forth and even Stanley Cole will play with, you know, synths sometimes but like I interviewed Cecil Taylor once and I asked him if he had ever even touched an electric piano and he looked at me <laughs> like I grew another head. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> No, he, he's a Bosendorfer artist, you know, he, that was, he's the piano, uh, and the purist in, in, uh, in, in that way, but, uh, you know, that was, was what was happening there, and I wanted to, you know, uh, and later on with Freddie, you know, I started, uh, you know, I even used attachments, echoplexes, wah-wah pedals, and uh, clavinets and string synthesizers and like that, you know. That seemed to be, I mean, uh, whereas with Freddie, you know, uh, Herbie had his band, the Mardishi band, and uh, uh, there was, you know, I was really 
there was, I mean, I got to admit, there was a time, especially from the time I heard Harry playing with Miles Davis through all that time, that I really was strongly influenced by him. Uh, and, uh, you know, in some ways, you know, most pianists either wanted to be Herbie or play Herbie or McCoy. And I was influenced strongly by both of them. Uh, and I loved both of them. If you ask me who was my favorite pianist, it depends upon the day. Uh-huh. You know, yeah. if you ask me. Yeah. I'd like to ask you about a few other people that you played with in the 70s. So I'll just kind of throw a name at you and, you know, you tell me what your memories are of them or what you learned from that situation or got out of it, you know. Like, I mean, you were talking about Freddie Hubbard. You made a bunch of records with him, uh, with him for Columbia in the early 70s, I think. So, you know, what were those? Were those, like, heavily orchestrated? Like, because, you know, he did that kind of... He kind of went full disco at one point, but that wasn't when you were in his band. Oh, I, I, I can remember when he did... Oh, what the heck? I had that album in my... I had the name at my top of my... Tip of my tongue. Uh... It was an uh, album on Atlantic, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I remember after he did that date, I wasn't working with him then, but I, I think I had played once with him. I played a couple things early on, uh, and uh, Backlash, the record Backlash, and it was sort of a funk. It was a funky record, and I remember. Being around Slug, and y'all gonna hate me. <laughs> uh, he did this record where he was playing more funk, but it wasn't like you know. I think you're talking about the era uh, from uh, I don't know whether you're speaking about like from CTI or yeah, or, or even or after late, that, yeah. But later, the you know later Columbia records, you know, that he did, but um, those. Um, I, I, you know, when we were playing, Freddie would play to play funky things, but he wouldn't give, you know, he just uh, would like, he loved to play so much that uh, I, I think, like me, my, I can say about me, my whole experience, I would say my, my career has been a learning experience. And I think with Freddie as well, I mean, he mentioned to me, you know, George, I'm still, you know, ballads have really been hard for me to play, and I'm still, you know, trying to slow down. It's really difficult for me. So uh, uh, he just, whatever records he played, whatever he did on the record, when we played, he would play with reckless abandon. You know, seldom warm up. He would just kind of pull the horn out, put the mouthpiece in, go bloop, and then... Uh, Okay, I'm ready. And go and play. <laughs> and that during that period of time, I was working with him. He played. Uh, um, it seemed like it seemed like he could play whatever he thought of it. He thought of it, he could play. You know, whatever it was. You know, and he was always challenging himself. And he's a very competitive guy. Somebody else like sat in, who played high, then he would play high. Somebody played this, you know. Because he had, you know, the whole the whole thing together. But Freddie, I enjoyed playing with Freddie. I had, uh, I loved playing with Freddie. Let me put it that way. Because 
you know, he was a virtuoso. He loved to play. And whatever he thought of his records, uh, which I really like, I mean, I thought he was a great composer as well. And I think he's a very underrated composer. Uh, uh, writing pieces like Sweet Sue, uh, uh, True Colors, for BP, Intrepid Fox, Thermo, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and, and arranging stuff. Uh, um, so I, I thought that uh, Freddie uh, was was just was just great. And everybody at that time wanted to play with Miles. I wanted to play. You know, that was the thing. That was the gig that everybody, if you played with Miles, you were gold. Uh, but uh, once I played with Freddie, I didn't really care. I mean... Freddie and Miles, definitely two different things. Mm -hmm. You know, Miles was like a, a, a magician. Uh, Freddie, though, as far as a trumpet is concerned, Freddie, nobody would, at that time, nobody could touch him. He he uh, played with, he didn't, you know, when he played an audience, no matter what, if he was playing red clay or playing with something that was funky, he never, he didn't, Played down to the audience. He didn't play down to the. If it's uh, you know like a funk piece, well I got to do this. I got to. He'd always, you know, like play the horn. And uh, I look forward to each night. I can't believe all those things. See, I felt like I had, and I felt feel like this about. Like, you know, most of the people I played with, I had the best seat in the house. You know <laughs> that I could hear this and I could contribute and be a part of it as well. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. What about so? Uh, what about your time with Dexter Gordon? What did you uh, Dexter, What did you get out of that and take away from that? Well, first of all, Dexter was. Um, <laughs> uh, how can I talk about Dexter? Is one of a kind. He's one of the. Uh, founders of the bebop concept of music and he uh, I loved hang I loved to hang with him to talk with him and uh, stuff I got a lot of musical education hit music history education uh, right from Dexter you know and uh, you talk about it yeah, Art Tatum, you know, about Prez, and uh, talk about uh, guys like Louis Armstrong, who we worked with, and uh, Lionel Hampton, and uh, what he was doing, and the people he liked, the people he was, you know, he didn't like, you know, what he, who, who he saw swung and who he didn't saw, he thought didn't swing. Uh, but um, with Dexter, I was back at the piano, and I rekindled my love for the piano uh, mm. to just about complete abandonment of uh, of uh, electric keyboards. Uh, now, Dexter, we we played uh, um, wow, uh, a pretty. Uh, Oh, I don't know about standard repertoire, but we would talk. Oh yeah, Train. We speak about Train, and uh, we play Body and Soul. That was influenced by Train, and Train was 
really influenced by Dexter. As a matter of fact, Buddy Montgomery, whom I played with uh, in 1968, uh, uh, he was saying the only time he ever heard Train Bay Badly was he said, when Dexter went and was sat in the front row. <laughs> he got so nervous. <laughs> but uh, um, Dexter, I would say, I consider, even though I played with <coughs> lots of great musicians and listened to lots of great musicians, been strongly influenced by Train and Miles and all, I would consider and, and work with Art Pepper, who, uh, who was had a great uh, relationship and time with him. What I, Dexter, well, I consider like my musical father. You know, like, um, I guess in approaching the, the, the piano and how to swing, because Dex was just electric, I think, you know, his, his kind of incendiary. That's the one word I also used to describe Gary Bartz. Mm -hmm. But Dexter's playing was uh, uh, big and uh, very, very big, and he could you know, really swing it seemed like Dexter was the embodiment of jazz you know of what the music is and should be mm -hmm. you know uh, I don't mean that uh, now Dexter was very clear in his playing uh, and he was still also I'd play some stuff that maybe I would use force and use some other kind of phrases and sometimes play in and out of the chords a bit but he uh, you would say, hey, man, what was that? What do you do? You know, what was that? How did you do that? What was... And so he was always interested. He was not closed-minded. He was open-minded. And uh, uh, so uh, I can say this. As I started, uh, there was a time that we started playing a ballad. And when it came to the piano solo, the roof has stopped. And then, of course, Eddie, Eddie Gladden, he stopped. So that means his piano solo is, uh, is really solo piano. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I just got through it and didn't play in time. I played robotic, just kind of played out of the time, which I got to, to the idea from Train's uh, um, cadences on I want to talk about you and pieces like that. Uh, and so I just played the song and played it in a different way, tried to turn it inside out. And Dex, you know, that was all right with Dex. Dex like that. And next thing you know, the next time, next ballad, we did the same thing. And that became the way we played ballads. And so Dexter was encouraged me to find my voice. And always it would say, you know, one thing, you know, I can play, but you need your own concept. You've got to have your concept. Mm -hmm. Whatever it is you have, you need your concept, your voice. But he would use the word concept. It's a good concept. Uh, uh, so uh, I got that from Dex, uh, the idea of really, uh, and re the reinforcement of the idea of of groove of keep of really the groove being very important paramount mm -hmm. uh, I mean uh, for me I've, I remember saying to somebody 
you know, jazz is in the drum. And of course, they objected vehemently. But uh, I think they misunderstood me. I don't mean, I didn't mean just the instrument. I mean that drum inside us, you know. I mean that, uh, that the rhythm is an intrinsic part of this music. The Greek, the beat, the grooves, or whatever it is, that energy, that feeling, is that pulse, is an important is is an important part of and the heart and soul of jazz. You know, uh, that's what made uh, people love jazz and made the music come alive. And you can't lose sight of that. And you you know you can if you got a groove if you you know you you can do anything you want and you can. Uh, uh, play the cerebral, you know, be as cerebral as you want to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think also, uh, while I'm at it, uh, you, you know, there are things sometimes people play straight right, right in the chords, right through, but uh, you may think, oh, that's simple, but sometimes simple things are, are can be the most difficult. Uh, and uh, and uh, being cerebral doesn't mean being far out. Being cerebral just means, you know, using your brain to organize things and point out, figure out ways to get around, uh, 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 develop what you're doing. That's actually, that brings me to a question, which is because you, you got your start in the, like professionally, I mean, in the years immediately after John Coltrane's passing, and that was a time when the jazz scene was changing a lot, like not only with the advent of electric instruments and things, but in terms of the audience and the culture surrounding the music. So, I mean, as someone who was working mostly within the tradition, you know, what did the 70s feel like to you as far as an environment for jazz? Because I feel like guys like guys like McCoy, you know, and Sonny and people like that kind of the public wasn't there the way it had been in the 60s, you know? Well, things so. had changed, you know, tastes were changing, but McCoy was McCoy. I love him for that, because he, when he, uh, well, in New York, sometimes the scene, you know, like the, the, the it was a real vibrant jazz scene, but it seemed to kind of uh, go dormant for a minute, you know, like just kind of, to uh, go underwater. I mean, there were places, but it wasn't the same. I remember in the 60s and 62, I used to go to see Monk uh, at the Five Spot and and Mingus and the Five. There was always some Birdland was happening, places all around. And there was a lull. Uh, uh, and it was a little depressing. New York was depressing anyway about that time. But I think it started to find itself uh, after later in the 70s. But um, I can say that uh, um, uh, uh, like listening to McCoy, uh, when I hear him at the, out west, if I hear him at, at uh, uh, Keystone Corner, mm-hmm. boy, that was a great audience that went to Keystone Corner. Uh, and San Francisco in the 70s was a great jazz town. Because you get out of the plane, you get in a cab. About ninety percent of the cabs had K Jazz or the, the radio station on. Uh, the, uh, on Keystone Corner, the both end, uh, 
uh, I mean, the first place I went was the, in Sanford, played it in the San Francisco before I moved there, was the jazz workshop. Uh, that kind of went downhill, I disappeared a bit. But then there was the both end. But then when the Keystone started happening, a Keystone, I remember Hugh McCoy there, speaking of McCoy, the, uh, and when he played, you felt like, I felt like he was making the piano levitate. It was so much energy uh, that you just couldn't resist. And, you know, guy Miles played there. You know, anybody, you know, I played there so much. People thought I lived, I was living in L.A. from 71 on. And people thought I lived in the Bay Area because I was there playing with Toot Steelman, with Bobby Hutchison, with uh, um, Art Pepper, with Sonny Rollins, with, uh, you know, well, later... Later on, from '77, from Tex to Gordon, uh, uh, but uh, um, that was uh, uh, that was a, a time of upheaval for sure. There were different people. Cecil Taylor was there. Then, there, on the other hand, like in San Francisco, there was Tower Power and uh, uh, Sly and the Family Stone, and that that end, you know, of of, of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. But in, in a way, the 70s were kind of exciting. New York was a bit depressed, so that's from 71 I moved out of there. Uh, uh, um, but L.A. was not, uh, I still, you know, I can remember Clifford Jordan saying to me, yeah, you California musician, he was pressing my buttons. <laughs> <laughs> you probably hate that. <laughs> and, Although I lived in California, I just considered myself a New York musician because of that energy and that uh, that, that commitment that uh, uh, the, on, the, on the East Coast. But uh, things definitely did go downhill. But that, I thought, was not just in music. I mean, it was, it was uh, all in, in many ways. New York was kind of falling apart at that time started falling apart you know a lot of crime daylight crime mm-hmm. uh, but uh, uh, still you know there were you know I've, I've had I've been very 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 fortunate in my life I got like in 19 later 19, late 1969 I got to play with Max Max Roach and his band with Abby and Woody and Gary Bartz and uh, who was the bassist? Maybe Reggie at some point and Reggie Borgman and uh, a bass from Philadelphia whose name I just can't pull out of my mouth at the time. Uh, but uh, and then going out west with Sonny Rollins. I mean, what could be better than that? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And then. Uh, Working with Freddie, that was from 71 to 76. So we stayed busy, and there was a lot of, for me, with Freddie, working with, um, using a lot of keyboard, a lot of uh, electri- electri- electric keyboards, like uh, Fender Rhodes and clavinet and string synthesizers, echoplexes and but that was the era, you know, wah wah pedals. That was yeah, 
Well, and, you, uh, your you know, first that, album, your your first album, which was an acoustic trio record, uh, was yeah, that that was released only in Japan, or did it come out in the U.S. as well at first? It was released only in Japan. Uh, and how uh, did that? Uh, how did you wind up signed to a Japanese label? Well, a guy came from Japan, uh, Masahiko Yu, uh, and he. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think who I first, if I first met him in Japan. When I was my first trip to Japan was with Freddie Albert <laughs> in '72, I think. So, so he came to L.A. and said, "You want to do a record?" Yeah, <laughs> so me, Dumas, and uh, and uh, Carl Burnett, and I think they were working with Freddie Hubbard at the time. We were all working with Gary, and we did. Why not? We did. I think they're all my compositions on there. Yeah, yeah. I listen to that and see how much I've changed. You know, how much <laughs> the, the the pieces have changed, the concept and everything. Yeah, because you've re-recorded just, some of those since. On other yeah, albums. I probably did all of it. <laughs> <laughs> Which, actually, that that leads me to a question because you made a bunch of albums in the '90s for uh, the Steeplechase label, the Dutch label, and uh, mm -hmm. those often featured more standards than your own pieces. And so, since you know you're a player who's drawn to interpretation in that way, I guess I'm kind of curious if you could talk to me about what makes you choose a song like what are you looking for when you're selecting material for an album oh can i play it <laughs> you know or, or does it fit me does uh do i like it i mean there are places i like that i can't play uh, i'd really like to figure out a way to play uh i could the last record i did uh, uh young at heart i've been thinking about that song for a long time i said i can't spend how can I play that song? I can't find a way to really, uh, you know, I think about it. It's a fun song, and then kind of put it out of my mind. But there are other pieces that I really like and I wanted to play, and maybe I played before that I thought I could add something to, do better, or or uh, play trio, or play with another band, or um, but. When I choose a piece, I, I like to know will it fit what I have, what I have to give, or can I fit in? Can I uh, find a way to make uh, that work for me? Is I don't know a, if I can get more specific. <laughs> is there a piece that you've recorded uh, like a bunch of times, like a standard that you keep coming back to? Hmm. Uh, a standard. Oh, probably. I wonder if I saw Stella by Starlight. I landed. I learned on that piece, but I don't know. I think I might have recorded that one or twice, once or twice. But I mean, I haven't played it. I mean, I'm aware of of those things. But Ebony Moonbeam, say some of my pieces. Mm -hmm. It's not a. I may have. I may. Have play different, you know, in different ways. I may play them more or record them again because they're in a different uh, setting or, or so, because I played them, played them with Freddie. I wrote it actually for Freddie, I played it with Bobby, 
And I played a trio, my own trio records. And, You've played it with the uh, Cookers, too. I play, yeah, I played it with the Cookers. So, yeah, well, those I revisit for sure. It's, you know, we start looking at some of those things. Because now I'm, I'm, I'm writing not quite as much of my own, you know, new pieces. But rewrite, sometimes rewriting my pieces and rewriting... Uh, uh, you know, finding standards, pieces that I like to play that uh, I haven't um, really uh, played a lot, or maybe I played uh, some pieces I've played with, uh, in places with Bobby, with Bobby Hutchison. Mm -hmm. Maybe some of his pieces that I'd like to play. He's played mine. He's <laughs> not <laughs> play his. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious um, about the uh, about the Cookers because I've seen I've seen that band play. I saw the I saw you guys at uh, the Iridium in Manhattan a couple of years ago, and you've been a member of that band for about ten years now. So how did it come together? Like, what was David Weiss's pitch to you, and what made you say yes? Well, it was something to do one thing, but uh, I really liked the person. Look, all these most of the guys in there. And when I think when we started, James Spaulding was a part of that. You know, I just wanted to play again because he's a guy I kind of come, came up with. But James, not so much. I played with before, but uh, of course, his relationship with Freddie made me feel like I played with him. You know, <laughs> uh, you know, like we were related. Uh, and uh, and uh, uh, Billy Harper. Mm -hmm. uh, with Blakey and with uh, uh, and uh, uh, Eddie Henderson over the years, uh, um, Billy Hart. Gee, he he's one of the people that really threw me in this deep in the deep end of the pool. <laughs> and, okay, I got a gig for you. You playing with? I got he with you with uh, Buddy Montgomery, Buddy and Mon Montgomery and Eddie Moore. Okay. And, second gig in the, on the road uh, and he's also on the very first record I ever made with um, Paul Jeffrey mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, you know we just go you know most of them and Cecil McBee we played together way back in the day so this was like old home week in a way and a bunch of iconic great musicians iconic musicians and how could you say no? You know? So, yeah, I'm interested in that. I mean, it's different from, say, what I'd be playing, trio, what I'd be playing with my own band. But that's a good thing. You know, I have a chance to do something else and maybe remind me to do, uh, oh, am I am I not taking enough chances or what are we doing? Uh, there's a lot of energy involved. It's uh, um, so I yeah I, I I thought that was a great idea. And plus, I said first there was something to do, but that probably is the very last the last thing that came to mind. Yeah, well, I need to you know I need a gig. I need to get a gig. Mm -hmm. But that was the probably the last consideration. The first one was. Uh, the music, you know, and I, and plus, you know, with 
I, uh, I mentioned Billy Harper and Art Blakey, but then I was on this first on that record, Capra Black. I did yeah, that with him. yeah, which is a great and, record. I mean, it's it's really wild. Uh, so, uh, yeah, why not? You know, I hadn't been a part. So yeah, let's revisit some of that. Maybe that give me uh, um, some spark that I, I need. You know, some. There's always, you know, when you're playing music, uh, it's nice to play play your own thing, be in charge of what you do. Uh, uh, but even though, you know, I, most of my career I've been a sideman, and I, I enjoy that. It's not a sacrifice for me. Mm -hmm. It's like uh, being a sideman is not a... It's, you know... And I learned from Miles' band from McCoy's band, and I kind of demand anyway, from because of that, that when I'm in that band, I'm not you know just going to play you know what's uh, on the page or uh, to play the thing that's maybe well I wouldn't say expected in each band you know you wear another hat, but uh, play the the. Uh, uh, the backup role. You you are what you do affects what everybody else does. Mm -hmm. What you do ex affects what the soloist does. When there's a soloist, he's not the only guy improvising. Everybody's improvising. So you know you have an important role in the direction of the music. So I really I really enjoyed that. Uh, but as I got older, you know, I basically want to do trio because. Uh, think, simply put, I wanted to play the melody too. <laughs> you know, the piano can play a melody. And as time was going on, I enjoy being, you know, in charge of that, being in control. But also, I know from experience the value of the other people in the band. It's not like me and them, it's mm -hmm. us. Which is, you yeah, know. which I wanted to ask you, because your new record, I'm All Smiles, is your fourth record with your with the same trio. And there was a yeah, fifth one it, that you guys did with an alto saxophonist whose name I can't remember right now. But uh, Oh, oh uh, with uh, Craig Handy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, and I used a vocalist as well, so uh, that was... Uh, so what is it about these two guys, Victor and, and Essiet, that work so well for you? Yeah, uh, uh, Steve Kroon played percussion on that as well. But it was one of the trio records that, that uh, Essiet was not on, and that was and that was Desron Douglas when it was on that, was right. on Icons and Influence. Yeah. And that's because Essiet said, oh, man, I can't make it, man. I've, I've, I got, I've, uh, I'm, I'm tied up. So then I called Desron, and we were rehearsing together at my house and I got a call from Essie and said, Hey man, that's blah 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 I can I can make it. You know, man <laughs> it's too late now. But uh I I love it. I love Desron as well. I love what he brings to music. He's a great bass he's a great person and a very creative person and maybe uh people could describe him as an old soul. Uh but uh, I so Essiet, yeah, I love Essiet. Essiet um, uh, brings a lot his uh, uh, his sound, his 
his pulse, the way he plays, uh, and his spirit. So I, I love playing with that shit and what he brings. We feel very, very uh, confident with him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Victor. Victor is. Yeah, Victor, you, you know. Been playing ever. with since like the early 90s. I saw an album, uh, Beyond Forever from yeah. 92. So. Yeah. I mean, we play with Dexter together, too. I mean, oh, yeah, yeah. There some... And then we played before that. You know, we've been playing, you know, off and on for years and years. So, um, and the, although, you know, I played with, in those times, with, with different musicians, different rhythm sections that I, I really enjoy. But, you know, I, I've been playing with them, and they've been, so what, what the heck? Um, you know, and for a penny and for a pound. <laughs> so. <laughs> I guess my last question is sort of a tougher one, which is that you recently had a major health issue. You had most of <coughs> one of your legs amputated, as I understand it. Well, yeah, I had my left leg, my left leg amputated. Yes. So above the knee. Above the knee. Okay. Yeah. So what happened exactly? Was it? the result of like an underlying condition like diabetes or was it something else no diabetes a circulation problem i was Mm pre-diabetic but you know i can say one thing that i picked with the the insurance company because i i was going to the wound doctor uh and somehow you know like my wounds would get worse and they would get worse you know that they were, you know, I had a small wound that just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, you know. So, uh, 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 there's a, uh, I can't think of the name of the treatment, that where you get in an oxygen tank uh, and you're treated with, with oxygen. Oh, the, the hyperbaric chamber, I think they call it, yeah. Yeah, get in a hyperbaric tra- chamber. But the, the, the insurance company wouldn't allow it because, or wouldn't do it to pay for it because I wasn't diabetic, you know, uh, and, uh, but still, you know, I was getting these raging, uh, uh, wounds on my right leg. Finally, they started to heal and I thought, boy, I'm out of the wounds. And then my left leg exploded. Wow. And, uh, that got to be, so I even lost my heel. I mean, there was no way and no heel, no way to repair. I went to I went to see uh, a uh, plastic surgeon, a, uh, a uh, uh, you know, vascular surgeons, a couple of vascular surgeons, uh, infectious disease people. This, you know, everybody said the same thing except the wound doctor that I was going to. He said, "Well, I think maybe we can work it, but there was no way I could repair." Everybody said, "Look." You lost your heel. There's no way we could reconstruct this heel. There's no way we could do this. We could do it. So, uh, uh, actually, when I went to the first, uh, uh, I had uh, other, I mean, I had a kidney liver transplant in, in 2007. So, I see, you know, my uh, liver and kidney doctors uh, uh, post a transplant just as checkups, you know, mm-hmm. see them. Three, six months, three, six months. Uh, and it was my uh, liver doctor that sent me to the vascular surgeon. And he said, look, I'm afraid this leg has got to go. So 
when you want to do it. <laughs> so wait a minute. <laughs> Let me get a, a second opinion. Is that all right? <laughs> they said, sure. So I got a second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seven, you know, more opinions. That's when I went to those other doctors and, uh, and they confirmed what he said. So I came back to him and I said, well, what is it? Well, when can we do it? As soon as possible. Because I was in a lot and lots. I was in a lot of pain. It was very, very painful. And I was taking a lot of pain, a lot of heavy-duty pain medication. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, uh, and that would help, you know, for a while. And then you to take it again, take it, you know, for you know, every four or six hours, you know, just tramadol, oxycodone. So... Once I lost the leg, it was like relief. Wow! You know, it's it's a strange thing to to, to hear, but you know, you lose the leg, so okay, get rid of this poisonous thing, appendage on me. Uh, yeah. Did it uh, did it impact your playing at all? Like, did you you know was it did you have the ability to like operate uh, the pedals the way you did or? Anything like well, that. I had difficulty playing when I had the leg because it was I was sitting at the piano it was difficult. I tried to make these gigs with the cookers, and uh, it was difficult. Uh, I couldn't make them all. I made a couple, and then also there was an odor associated with these wounds because of the infections. Wow, so that wasn't very. So um, once I got the leg taken off and went to rehab uh, I could sit down and play but, but uh, it was I had to do a lot of work because I hadn't played much mm-hmm. you know so I, I had to do a lot of work to get strong and I think I'm stronger now than I have been in in a long time been playing better than I have played in a while I mean uh and and spend more time at the piano than <laughs> I spend a long time as well, you know, just getting up, getting in, making sure I do that exercise every day to get, you know, which I didn't do before. I mean, I used to do when I was younger, you know, uh, but then, you know, when you're going on the road, you're working every day, playing, you know, uh, I didn't need to warm up, and then the combination of aging, working less, and everything. All of a sudden, you know, I got to the piano and said, oh, man, I need to. <laughs> if I was off the piano, if I didn't work for two weeks, uh, I'd be, you know, in trouble. Uh, so now I just try to uh, stay very safe. I'm very vigilant about about getting at the piano, uh exercising and, and, and like that. And was that kind of the inspiration to some degree behind the new record? Yes, absolutely. You know, when I was ill, people sent me, uh, I guess it was a GoFundMe that exceeded anything that I thought, I mean, I would have thought of. I, I wouldn't even look at first. I mean, I'm not going to say, oh, man, there's no you know. <laughs> I'm not going but, to. But that, uh, and the messages of support and everything, 
was unbelievable. So uh, I felt doubly just reinforced my determination to play and come back and really play was reinforced uh, and redoubled by 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 that uh, by those messages and uh, the gifts that people sent me. So I feel like I owe them. <laughs> so I better do something, you know. Mm-hmm. You know uh, and and it's been rewarding, very rewarding for me. Uh, uh, just being at the piano and uh, and again, it was like going back to the piano. It was like being uh, work with, with Dexter, you know. Uh, uh, discovered the piano, the love of the, just the piano. This it was very much like that, you know, rediscovering the, the, the piano and playing, you know, the playing that piano, and doing what I could, and and rediscovering myself, really. Yeah. Okay, that was my conversation with George Cables, and that's the end of this episode of the Burning Ambulance podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, and if so, I hope you'll consider becoming a subscriber on Patreon at patreon.com slash burningambulance. It's just $5 a month, and it'll really help us improve the content on the website and the show, and maybe even start creating some exclusive content just for subscribers. So visit patreon.com slash burningambulance and throw us $5 a month if you can. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll come back for the next one. Osiris.